Well, I'm going to pick up where Pastor David left off. There is a insert in your bulletin, and this maps out some of the events that we have as we enter into Holy Week. I have a very simple agenda today, and that agenda is not to go into a lot of teaching, I'm not going to get into a lot of theological exposition as we've had the past three weeks. By the way, uh, Jonathan and Dan have just done an outstanding job <laughs> sewing into the body. <clears throat> we've been from the beginning of the year on a series called Teach Us to Pray, where we're walking through the Lord's Prayer. We're going to interrupt that today, and I'm going to talk here for a few minutes about how we can prepare as individuals and how we can prepare as a corporate body for Holy Week. I'm gonna share a little bit of my journey and where I'm at currently and where I suspect that God will continue to grow me and grow us and the things that I believe God is forming into this house. And then we're gonna go straight to the scriptures and we're gonna start with Palm Sunday and we're gonna walk through a day-by-day -day guide of how we can prepare our hearts to encounter Jesus afresh and anew and in a very powerful way this Easter season. So uh, for those of you guys who don't know my background, uh, graduated from ORU with two degrees from 96 to 2003. And I would say that most of my church denominational history has been within the Pentecostal, full gospel, charismatic, and now prophetic streams of uh, God's church. And for all the incredible strengths that are within those streams, as I look back and I take inventory of the particular local bodies that I've been in, I can't say that one of our strengths has been uh, doing a very adequate job preparing God's people that were in those local bodies uh, for the 40 days leading up to Palm Sunday that we know is Lent or uh, preparing people to engage deeply with Holy Week. Uh, sometimes, if I were to be really, really honest with you, even as a staff pastor, sometimes Easter has snuck up on us and we've been surprised by it. I'm just gonna be really honest with you. I get people look at me like, you call yourself a pastor. Yep. <laughs> it happens, it happens. You know, with all of the, the life and the duties and the activities and the responsibilities, if you're not paying attention, sometimes those things can just sneak up on you unaware. And that's one of the purposes of Lent, 40 days leading up to Palm Sunday, is so that the cornerstone of our Christian faith, which is the resurrection of Jesus, does not sneak up on us. It is so that we enter into that season in a very thoughtful and a very reflective, not in a religious manner. It might be tradition as, we're, as we are participating with some of the traditions of the church, but that doesn't have to be lifeless. That doesn't have to be sterile. That doesn't have to be devoid of the Spirit's power. Some of these traditions that have been around within the Church of God Universal have been around for centuries, you guys, centuries. And when you think about what has formed the church from the moment that Jesus resurrected and ascended, the things that have formed the church, number one, obviously are scripture, God's specific revelation given to man. It's that revelation that has been divinely inspired and we teach on that, we preach on that on a very regular basis. Scripture shapes and forms our ecclesiology, who we are as the people of God. Number two, the Holy Spirit. We believe that God's church was formed 
in the fires of the baptism of the Holy Spirit as we see in Acts chapter two. We believe the, the power of God's spirit is a vital and critical and essential element in the formation of who God's people are. Number three, we also believe, and there's many other things that I could reference here, but for the sake of time, we also believe that tradition, tradition, shapes the formation of who God's people are. And as Pastor Dan and the preaching team around Christmas did such an incredible job uh, teaching us that tradition is not a bad thing. Traditionalism, where we marginalize the life of God and we hold to traditions for the sake of traditions, those things lose the power of God. But when we allow traditions to become a tool where we can encounter God and God's spirit and God's word afresh and anew, those things then become very life-giving and they become very formative. And so as we talk about Holy Week, uh, there are many, many traditions that surround Holy Week. We're not going to introduce all of them, but uh, if you have your Bibles, turn with me, if you would, to Matthew chapter 21. Matthew chapter 21. What we're going to be looking at, and we're going to stick primarily to the book of Matthew, and I'd like to invite you to do something with me in the next two weeks. I have been on a personal devotional uh, study where I've just started in Matthew. I'm going through Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and I'm starting with the triumphal entry, Palm Sunday. So in Matthew, that starts in chapter 21, in Mark, it's chapter 11, so on and so forth, and Luke and John. Find in those gospels where the triumphal entry in Palm Sunday begins, and I'm just reading that through the end of the gospel. I'm going through all the gospels and just hitting repeat, and you'll find that it is a very... Uh, enriching exercise to focus in on that final week of Jesus's life here on the earth. So beginning here with Matthew chapter 21, I'm going to structure our talk today on the days of the week. So day number one would be Palm Sunday, which is next Sunday. So here we go. Matthew chapter 21, beginning in verse one. As they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethpage, on the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and at once you will find a donkey tied there with her colt by her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, tell him that the Lord needs them, and he will send them right away. This took place to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet. Say to the daughter of Zion, See, your king comes to you, gentle and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey." The disciples went and did as Jesus had instructed them. They brought the donkey and the colt, placed their cloaks on them, and Jesus sat on them. A very large crowd spread their cloaks on the road, while others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. The crowds that went ahead of him and those that followed shouted, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest when Jesus entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred and they asked, who is this? The crowds answered, this is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth in Galilee. Next Sunday, on Palm Sunday, we're actually gonna break this passage down. There are so many things that are happening here prophetically. So many things that are absolutely instrumental to that final week of Jesus's life. And actually, they're instrumental to our lives. 
And just from a summary point of view, one of the things that was happening here is the people of Jerusalem were acknowledging this is the Davidic Messiah. Jesus is the Messiah that we've all waited for. This is the one that throughout all of Jewish history, uh, the scriptures and the, the, the movement and the activity of God have pointed to this moment in time. Now, here's the interesting thing. The interesting thing is they got it right prophetically. The interesting thing here was that Jesus was the Messiah. The interesting thing is that Jesus did come to liberate and to bring the inauguration of God's kingdom into the earth. But here's the thing that they missed. They expected that to look a certain way. And just like Pastor Dan preached last week and just like Pastor Jonathan preached the week before, we can have an idea of who God is, but we can miss it in the execution. We can have an idea of God's character, but where we can miss it is our, 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 our finite, limited understanding of how God is supposed to move. And here's the thing. Jesus wasn't just interested in saving these localized group of people. He was interested in saving all of humanity. He wasn't interested just in fulfilling their understanding of what it meant to be Messiah. He was interested in understanding heaven's understanding and God's understanding of what it meant to be Messiah, which was vastly greater and incredibly different than their limited understanding. You know, there are certain things that preach really well. And uh, those of you guys who are preachers know what I'm talking about. And sometimes we can preach and uh, we can move and we can stir people's souls up. And it actually lack uh, some theological underpinnings and it lacks some real depth of understanding. And one of those things is this idea that, you ever heard this preach before? It preaches really great in youth groups. The same people that shouted Hosanna were the same people that days later were saying crucify him. So listen, don't be giving your hearts over to shallow people. That's not really the point that was being made there. Here's the thing that we have to understand. Deep within the very soul of this people, and this is something that as Westerners, and this is something as 21st century people, this is something that as a melting pot society, we just don't get. And we don't approach the scriptures with this understanding, but the people of God, the Jewish people, when they, when they thought about the Messiah, you have to understand they were under Roman oppressive rule. These were people that for 400 years prior to Jesus being born, they had no prophetic voice. The voice of God was not prominent. It was not pronounced in their culture any longer. It was, a, it was 400 years of silence. Prior to that, they were in exile. Prior to that, they were in captivity. Prior to that, all they could think about was the glory years of Solomon's peace and reign. And prior to that, David's mighty kingdom. So when they heard Davidic Messiah, here's what they thought. They thought there was going to be a man who would come and deliver them as a nationalized people from the rule of Rome. They were excited. They were excited to move forward with their prophetic redemptive history. They were excited that they were no longer going to be the, the, the beat down slaves as a people. They were excited about that. Everything in their history had pointed to this moment of time. And now six days later, the guy they put all their trust in is now shackled in chains. Six days later from the time they said, here's our king. Here's the one who's going to make it happen. Here's the one who's going to deliver us. Six days later, he's a humble, broken, bound man. They felt deeply betrayed. They felt deeply betrayed. 
Much like most of us feel deeply betrayed when we expect God to do things the way we expect him to do them. Deeply betrayed on a visceral, cellular level. Here's a people that everything in history was pointing to this moment and all of their hopes were elevated and all of their hopes were shattered. Because how could our Messiah King, how could our liberator be going to a cross? They had no understanding because the way of God, the will of God manifested in that moment looked entirely different than what they expected. But we're reading that hundreds of years and thousands of hours of scholarly research and understanding into that. These people didn't have that. They were just living in the moment. So the tone of that day was joy. The tone of that day was jubilation. It was excitement. It was celebration. And next Sunday, that's what our tone should be as well. Our tone is not celebration and jubilation and excitement because Jesus came into a town and they waved palm branches and then he was crucified six days later. Our tone is jubilation and excitement and celebration because the kingdom of God was inaugurated into the earth and everything that that meant upon its inauguration began when Jesus came into the earth. And that is exciting. And that demands jubilation and celebration. As we were dialoguing on this in our staff meeting, one of the questions that arose was, what is the difference then in the way that we can participate with Palm Sunday from Easter? Because we don't want to just duplicate services, right? We want to be able to calibrate our tone and calibrate our faith and calibrate our intention with that particular day. David actually had a really uh, interesting analogy, a really good analogy, I think. He said, Palm Sunday is like the pep rally before, before the Super Bowl. It's all, it's all the hype. It's all the excitement. It's all the expectation. It's all the celebration. We're here. We made it into the game. This is March Madness. Your team made it into the dance. We're going to the final four. We're in the championship. Easter is victory. Easter is not, hey, we just made it into the dance. Easter is, we won this baby. We crushed the opponents. Easter is the ribbon cutting ceremony. Easter is tearing down the nets. Easter is confetti falling. Easter is, we are victorious because Christ is victorious. So next week, our theme, the theme of next Sunday is joy, celebration, jubilation, excitement because our king has come. The following Sunday is a firm, a firm, deep conviction that we are now victorious because Christ has risen. He has risen indeed. He has defeated sin and death and the grave and everything that he has made available is ours as part of our inheritance in the here and now to bring the fulfillment of his kingdom to the earth. The next day, as we follow the story, if you'll pick this up in Matthew chapter 21, verse 12, you'll see that Jesus, this is now Monday, so Jesus has entered in Palm Sunday, the triumphal entry. And on Monday, everyone is watching. They're, they're with bated breath, curious as to what their Messiah is going to do. I mean, that's the context here. All the fanfare, all the hype, all the excitement. Now there's pressure. 
There's this internal pressure on Jesus. What is he going to do? Look at the first thing that Jesus does. He goes to the temple. Verse 12, Jesus entered the temple area and drove out all who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves. It is written, he said to them, my house will be called a house of prayer, but you are making it a den of robbers. Some translations and some of the gospels say a house of prayer for all nations. This is a complete paradigm shift that Christianity as Jesus was inaugurating kingdom Christianity was not just about one people. It was my house will be a house of prayer for nations. Verse 14, the blind and the lame came to him at the temple and he healed them. This is amazing. This is amazing. So the first thing that Jesus does is he gets the temple in order. He identifies things that are being done in the name of God, identifying things that have crept into this religious structure that are not honoring and not glorifying God. And he essentially goes in and he says, we have to make judgment begin with the house of God. First thing that he does. What did our Messiah do? Did he come and he overthrow people with a strong arm? No, he got things right in the house of God. How can we participate with this? How can we partner with this in our hearts and our minds and our attitudes on Monday of next week? Here's a great thing to do as you meditate on Jesus's interaction there in the temple, you begin meditating on this and interacting with the Holy Spirit. Lord, are there things in my temple that you need to clean out? Are there things in my thought life? Are there things in my attitude? Are there things in my expectations and my belief systems that you need to turn over that you need to completely undo? Have I brought things in to my kingdom theology that never should have been there? Here's the next interesting thing that happens here on Monday. Jesus curses a fig tree. Look at verse 18. Early in the morning as he was on his way back to the city, he was hungry. And seeing a fig tree by the road, he went up to it, but found nothing on it except leaves. And then he said, may you never bear fruit again. And immediately the tree withered. And when the disciples saw this, they were amazed. How did the fig tree wither so quickly? They asked. And he begins to speak to them about faith and prayer. Here's an, understa- here's an understanding contextually of what was happening here. Israel is often characterized as a fig tree in the Old Testament. Jeremiah chapter 8, verse 13. Let's look at Jeremiah chapter 8, verse 13. Give you a second to turn there. says, I will take away their harvest, declares the Lord. There will be no grapes on the vine. There will be no figs on the tree and their leaves will wither. What I have given them will be taken from them. Take a look with me, with me if you would in Hosea. Let's look at Hosea chapter nine. Hosea chapter nine. And we will look specifically at verse 10 says, when I found Israel, it was like finding grapes in the desert. This is God speaking over his people. When I found Israel, it was like finding grapes in the desert. He's speaking here of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and the beautiful things that were being formed and established in this people. He says, when I saw your fathers, it was like seeing the early fruit on the fig tree. 
But as they matured and when they came to Baal Peor, they consecrated themselves to that shameful idol and became as vile as the thing that they loved. So what's happening here when Jesus curses the fig tree, it symbolizes the judgment of God upon a nation, upon Israel. And here was the judgment that they had the outward appearance of life, but they failed to produce fruit. The outward appearance of life. And we see this when Jesus then goes into, we see in, in Matthew chapter 22, specifically in Matthew chapter 23, where he's addressing my, my Bible, the Thompson Chain IV says seven woes, but he's essentially rebuking and giving his uh, cr critical analysis of the religious structure of that time. You know what he's doing? He's bringing evidence as to why this judgment is coming upon that nation. And on and on and on it goes. So that's on Monday. Reflect on your temple, reflect on the vine of your life. Is there anything inside of you that has the appearance of outward life, but you know it's not producing the fruit of the spirit and the fruit of the kingdom? Now listen, when we participate with these questions in a spirit of sonship, they produce life. They produce opportunities where we can participate with God and his pruning activity and his pruning work in our lives to cut away dead things that aren't producing life, dead things that aren't producing fruit. There are things that are in my life, thought systems, attitudes, belief systems, actions, behaviors, all that I think as I deceive myself that they're producing something, but they're not. And if I'll stop and if I'll allow scripture to examine my heart, and if I'll have a conversation with the Holy Spirit, much like what David said in Psalm 139, where he says, search me and examine me and see if there's a wicked way within me, then we can participate with John 15, four and five, which if there be any branch in you that does not bear fruit, the master gardener will prune it so that you can be fruitful. And that's what we want as individuals and that's what we want as a people and that's what we want as a city and that's what we want as the kingdom of God, a fruitful kingdom. Let's take a look at here what happens on Tuesday. Tuesday's a very interesting day. Tuesday's a day where Jesus stands and he debates and enters into some very controversial topics. And we pick this up here in Matthew chapter 21, looking specifically at verse 23. There's a number of things that happen, not the least of which is the religious leaders of that day want to know by what authority are you doing these things? By what authority are you coming into this temple and turning things over? Who do you think you is? Think you could come in here to our temple and just turn things over? No, his authority is being questioned. And so Jesus, in a very masterful way, references John the Baptist. Hey, was John the Baptist's authority? Was it from heaven or was it from man? And we see from Matthew, at the end of Matthew 21, all the way into Matthew 25, in those four chapters there, Jesus is now essentially stating his authority from God and also giving the final blow of his verdict against the people of Israel. Look with me at Matthew 21, 28 through 32. This is known as the parable of the two sons. Let's just read this. Parable of the two sons. What do you think? There was a man who had two sons. He went to the first and said, son, go and work today in the vineyard. I will not, he answered. But later he changed his mind and he went. Then the father went to the other son and he said the same thing. He answered, I will, sir, but he did not go. Which of the two did what his father wanted? The first, they answered, Jesus said to them, I tell you the truth, the tax collectors and the prostitutes are entering the kingdom of God ahead of you. 
What was he doing? He was condemning the religious leaders for not believing John's message. He was condemning them. While tax collectors and sinners and prostitutes are believing and they're entering the kingdom of God. The next parable, which is called the parable of the tenants, Jesus emphasizes the exact same thing. He talks about a master who gives, uh, who gives these, these tenants authority over, over his land, his field, over his possessions. And what we find is that they act very wickedly, so much so that when he sends his son to these tenants, they decide to murder his son. Who's he speaking of? He is speaking his religious indictments against the people of Israel. This is why I'm doing what I'm doing. This is why I'm turning things over. This is why I'm taking this religious system and turning it on its head. I've come to destroy this religious structure that you've set up. Let's fast forward here, if we would, just for the sake of time. On Tuesday, you would read Matthew chapter 22. You would go into the great commandment. You would go into his analysis against the Pharisees. And you would also read about, in Matthew chapter 24, his signs of the end of the age. And in Matthew chapter 25, the parable of the ten virgins and the talents and the sheep and the goats. This is very interesting here. Because there's a transition that's taking place in the week. You see this major confrontation. Listen here to a couple of thoughts. The main themes of Jesus' discourse, reinforced by the parables of the ten virgins and the talents, are clear. And here's what it is. Followers of Jesus will experience increasing persecution and tribulation leading up to the final day of judgment. This is what he's unfolding here in Matthew 24 and 25. In fact, turn with me, if you would, in Matthew chapter 24. Key verse on this day, key verse in these events that are unfolding as his authority is being questioned, as he is laying down his judgment against the religious leaders, and also as he is speaking to his kingdom that has come but yet is not fully here yet. So in Matthew 24, the context of this chapter is the signs and the events of the coming of the end. Matthew 24, 12 says, because of the increase of wickedness, the increase of wickedness. See, I don't have time to go into this, but you know, many believe that things are just gonna continue to get better and better and better and better. And then we're just gonna kind of just disappear, vanish, because things are just gonna get wonderfully and increasingly better. Um, I think clearly we can look around and see that that's not quite the case, that things are just getting, I mean, things, great things are happening, but more biblically, what we see throughout scripture is that as righteousness increases, wickedness increases. And as wickedness increases, righteousness increases. And we see Jesus's description of the kingdom in Matthew chapter 13, there was a man who went out and he sowed seed into a field and there were righteous things or righteous sons. There were righteous fruit that were growing, but there were also wicked tares that were growing. Those are the sons of wickedness and they were growing up at the same time. So as righteousness increases, wickedness increases, Jesus is like, don't, don't fret over this. This is natural. This is how things will shake down. But watch this, very important. As he's letting us know, as things approach the end, not just the end of his physical life on earth, but the end of the created order before he returns for his second coming. Look at verse 13. Jesus says, he who stands firm to the end will be saved. To the end, to the end. 
Now, I missed this in verse 12. It says, the love of most will grow cold. The love of most. So what's the thing that sustains us? What's the thing? Why, why is this Holy Week so important? Why, why is scripture and spirit and reason and tradition, why are all these things in the formation of the church so important? These things should lead us into deeper devotion of who Christ is. They should lead our hearts into greater reverence and awe and wonder and worship and gratitude and praise for who Jesus is and what he did for our lives individually and for the created order at large because it's our love for him that will sustain us when wickedness increases. Also inherent within this, and I've got to say this before, before we close this out, inherent within this is this idea that if we develop wrong theological understandings of who Jesus was, who he is, what he did, what he's doing, what he will do, I'm really, really concerned that there's a lot of people on the earth in this hour that are gonna get sorely disappointed. And not only disappointed, I mean, imagine, imagine if someone tells you that there's a gospel out there and the gospel exists essentially to continue to feed your egocentricity. What do I mean by that? What if, there, what if someone tells you there's a gospel that everything's gonna be better and everything in your life is gonna change for the better and everything in your life is gonna just gonna be, it's gonna be smooth and it's gonna be easy. That is not the gospel that Jesus was preaching. That is not the kingdom that he was advocating. That's not the life that he was living. It's one of the reasons why the crucifixion was so important. It's one of the reasons why his incarnation as a man was so important. Jesus accomplished many things in the Passion Week, many things in his suffering, not the least of which is this, and don't miss this. He taught us as humans how to suffer and how to honor God and find God and draw near to God in the midst of very real pain and very real injustice. We don't always get delivered out of everything in this age, but we will get delivered out of everything in the scope of eternity. And Jesus teaches us this very thing. Many of us in this body are wrestling through theological questions, theological positions. We're wrestling through disappointments. And it might be because our view of who God is and what God should do for us is misaligned very much in the same way that the Jewish people had an idea of who the Messiah was, but the way that he executed that was grossly different than what they had convinced themselves to be true. Let's move on to the next day. The day is Wednesday here. Well, let me just, how can you participate on Tuesday? It's very, very simple. There are teachings that Jesus brings. There are ways there, are, there is a way of God in the kingdom that if we're to be really honest with ourselves, they're difficult. They're difficult. I'm reminded of in John chapter six, when his disciples come and everybody's left him after he says, you gotta eat my flesh and drink my blood. That's a difficult and a hard saying. And all throughout the gospel, Jesus says things like this. He says, pick up your cross, deny yourself. Die daily, follow me. That, is, that, is, that's, that sounds strikingly different than some of the messages that we hear in our culture today. We don't hear very many messages about picking up a cross and dying and suffering 
and drawing near to God in the midst of pain and adversity, denying ourselves. This is the message that Jesus came to preach. And here on Tuesday, how do we participate with that? In Holy Week, ask yourself, are there hard sayings of God that you've been rejecting? Are there difficult things about this way of the kingdom that you've been ignoring or evading and allow God to speak into your life? All right, let's get into Wednesday. Wednesday is a pretty quiet day. Uh, In some resources that I've read, they characterize Wednesday as a day of rest. It's a day of rest. It's a day of Jesus entering into a place of peace as he is now preparing himself for the next three days which is the preparation of Passover, Passover, his torturous execution, Good Friday leading up into Easter. Wednesday was a day where he was anointed at Bethany. His body was prepared for burial. This is the day where he was reclining at the table with his closest friends and Mary comes in and she anoints him. It's a day of him settling his mind. I am going to finish what what God the Father has begun for me. It's also the day where Judas agrees to betray Jesus. Interesting, on Wednesday, we see these two figures emerge. They're kind of subversive. They're not not really main characters in the plot, but we see Judas run off and he goes and he betrays Jesus because Jesus was not working fast enough. I mean, if, if you have this historical hope and expectation that Jesus is gonna come and he's gonna deliver you as a people, he's probably thinking... Come on, dude, let's get this party started, right? And let me just go ahead and help you do what I think you should do, what you said you're going to do, I'm going to help you do in the way that I want you to do it. And so he goes and tries to force Jesus' hand. This is one interpretation of the events that take place here. And he goes and he betrays Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. On the other side of the story, you have a humble, broken woman who has been gloriously redeemed. And here's what she's doing is she's worshiping Jesus. So one man is betraying Jesus. One woman is worshiping Jesus. And here's the thought that we can partner with. It is sometimes hard to be a disciple of the truth and the way. Sometimes we want Jesus to do what we want or act the way that we feel he should. Reflect on this. Reflect on your impatience with God's process and timing. And are you willing and able to worship him in the midst of his timeline and not your own? Let's look at Thursday. I just threw that in there. I just kept moving. This is known as Maundy Thursday, and I'm gonna move quickly here. On this day, on Thursday, this is where the preparations for the Passover are taking place. And on Thursday evening is where they actually, it's, it's interesting because of the calendar system here and Jewish calendar, Jewish schedules, the, the days began at 6 p.m. So nightfall from 6 p.m. till the next day, that's when their day was. So Jesus here on Thursday, they're participating with the preparation of the Passover. And we're gonna get into this a little bit next week as we talk about the historical and redemptive elements of the Passover. See, the New Testament doesn't stand alone from the Old Testament. Everything that we see in the Old Testament is pointing, it's all pointing to Jesus. The fulfillment of every law, the fulfillment of every type, every shadow, every symbol, every message was being fulfilled in Jesus, not the least of which was the greatest commemorative event of a Jewish people, which was Passover. In Passover, we find the children of Israel in Egypt. 
And they're celebrating the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And they're wiping the, the blood of, of, of animals, uh, lambs on their doors so that the angel of death would pass over. And Jesus, the Passover lamb, is shedding his blood for the ultimate redemption and liberation of all humanity from Pharaoh's rule. We find here on Thursday where they participate with the final Passover. Let me explain here that this would be a great thing to do as families or life groups to participate in a Seder meal on this night. To go, and we can provide you with some resources on how to do this. I've, we've begun doing this with our family and it is a very powerful and meaning experiential walking through that which the early church, that which the Jewish people experienced as they were looking to Jesus, their Passover lamb. Also, what happens here on this day of Thursday, Jesus predicts Peter's denial and then he prays in the garden, bringing this down to a close. Friday, Good Friday. We will be having a Good Friday service this year. And I apologize that in the past five years that we've had the responsibility of leading this house that we have not honored and celebrated Good Friday. We're gonna be having a Good Friday service this year. And this will be a day where we can think deeply about the price that Christ paid for our sin to redeem us, to liberate us, and to launch us into our identity as sons and daughters and to our assignment to bring his kingdom on the earth. Jesus is betrayed, he's arrested, he's brought before the Sanhedrin, he's accused, he stands on trial, he goes before Pilate, and also on this day he experiences the crucifixion. So on Good Friday, we are going to uh, think deeply about the power of the blood to atone us of our sin. We're gonna think deeply about the power of the blood to heal our bodies of sicknesses, to redeem our lives from curses and iniquities that exist within the bloodstream of humanity and particularly within our families. We're gonna think about what Christ has done. We're gonna think about the weight of our sin. You know, that's actually something important to do as Christians to think about the weight of our sin. Because he who has forgiven much loves much. And the truth of the matter is, regardless of external behaviors that you or I have participated with, if we really understood the weight of sin, we would realize that we've all been forgiven the same. Doesn't matter what kind of life you live, doesn't matter how, how, how deep in darkness it was or how much it wasn't, the weight of sin and the price of sin is the same for all of us. And allow God to speak into that not in shame, not in guilt, not in condemnation. Allow God to reveal the depravity of sin within us so that love and redemption will become even more valuable. Saturday, Sabbath, what happens on Saturday? Saturday is a day of mystery. It's a day of longing. It's a day where they're waiting the disciples are waiting. It's actually a day where some of them weren't sure that everything that he said that he was gonna do, they weren't sure if it was actually gonna happen. I mean, imagine that. Here, here is this man, you, you have your paradigm of what it means to be a Messiah, and now he's dead and gone, and all of your hopes in one moment were shattered, but yet there are seeds of faith that could it be that what he said he would do, he would actually do, and raising again from the dead. You know, there's many services in different traditions of faith where on Saturday they will come together as a people and they'll actually sit in silence and darkness. I think I'd like to try that someday. They'd sit in silence and darkness 
They would sit identifying with the very real mystery and even confusion that was happening within the people of God at that time as they were standing between the promise and the fulfillment of the promise and the resurrection. And imagine, imagine just, just imagine this. Imagine how glorious and how powerful and how vibrant and how truly triumphant Easter Sunday is when you have been, when you've been walking through 40 days of Lent, when you've been participating with the scriptures in Holy Week, when you've been sitting in the weight of your sin, when you've been thinking deeply about the power of the blood, when you have been longing in silence and darkness, now Easter means something powerful. Now light is breaking into darkness. Now we go to the tomb and the angel pops forth and he says, he is not here. He has risen just as he said he would. See, Easter, and I I say this as I close, Easter and resurrection are not just a day, Antioch. They're not just a day. They are the cornerstone of our very existence as a people. They, they, they are the original DNA strand of our DNA as believers in God. Everything rises and falls on the resurrection. Without resurrection, we have zero hope. And as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, we are still dead in our sins without resurrection. So that day, how do we participate? We participate in the victory the victory of our King, the victory of our God who became King. And that's what the gospels have been written to tell us. They've not been written so much to tell us about an incarnation. They've not been written so much to tell us about a virgin birth. They've been written to tell us that this God has in fact become King. King over all of the created order and King of his people to bring his kingdom back into existence in the earth. And so now we stand, we stand in this incredible tension that the kingdom has begun. It's been inaugurated, but the kingdom is not yet fully here. And we stand in between two advents, the advent of our king who has come and the advent of our king who is coming. And many of our questions could be answered within that mystery. Why is it that I prayed? Why is it that I expected healing to come? Now, you said that I lay hands on the sick and they recover. It's because we exist in between two advents. Yes, the kingdom has begun. That's why we can have hope. That's why we can have authority. That's why we can have faith to even believe that healing will come. But yet in the mystery and sovereignty and goodness of God, there's also his kingdom that is fully coming. And we live between those two realities. And it keeps us powerful yet humble. It keeps us expectant and longing. It keeps us knowing that Jesus truly is victor, both now and forevermore. Let's all stand to our feet this morning. My prayer for you today, as we prepare our hearts, I'm asking that you would think about these things. There's some great resources, both online. There's a book I'm reading through right now, two books, if you're interested. One is called How God Became King by N.T. Wright. And the other book is called Surprised by Hope by N.T. Wright, both of which are helping to shape a deeper and fuller understanding of these things.
So we ask you to join us, not only on Palm Sunday, we ask you to join us as a city. We invite the king into our city next Sunday night. We invite you to join us for Good Friday service. We invite you to bring your kids early to hunt for the hidden treasure of Christ's return and resurrection and to celebrate our risen king. And listen, that Sunday is going to be a powerful visual demonstration of the reality of the kingdom in our lives today, filled with glorious testimony. So bring a friend, bring a family member, bring someone who needs to hear the gospel of the kingdom. Let me pray and close this out. And let me bless you today, church. You guys have been fantastic today. Father, we thank you. We thank you, God. Our hearts are elated. Our hearts are full. Our hearts, Lord, are longing. Our hearts are expectant, and yet our hearts are fulfilled. And Father, we thank you that you did not leave the world to its own devices. You have not left us alone in the mire of sin. You sent your son. You delivered us. You ransomed us. You redeemed and rescued us from the clutches of sin and death, from the strongholds of iniquity. You have delivered us. Father, I pray that your Holy Spirit would move upon us as a corporate people and your Holy Spirit would move upon us individually as we prepare our hearts to deeply inhale of the death and the resurrection of Jesus. Mark us, cut the lines of kingdom theology, cut the lines of resurrection life, cut the lines of redemptive hope, cut the lines of prophetic destiny deep inside of who we are as a people. Let us be marked as sons and daughters of God who live in the power of your resurrection, who long for the fulfillment of your kingdom, but who are at work to bring your kingdom into the earth. In Jesus' name, amen.